Hey everybody, welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King. I'm Brennan Porter. With families and day jobs, we know it's hard to find time to get out there with your cameras. So Brendan and I joined together and made the commitment to go out consistently and build up our landscape and astrophotography portfolios. We live in Utah and are lucky to have so many beautiful landscapes all around us. Not only do we have five national parks right here in Utah, but we are only a day or less drive away from 30 other national parks. So we created PhotogAdventures.com, this podcast, and our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures. Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes. We hope that you will get out there too and have a Photog adventure of your own. It's episode 53. Welcome everybody to the Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King. Here's Brendan Porter. This is a special episode because we are mostly on YouTube only today and we'll put the audio over there for you guys on the podcast so you have that as well. But we are joined today by the one and only Nick Page. Hey Nick. How's it going? The one and only. I like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. You guys should introduce me everywhere I go. That's nice. Everybody, here comes the one and only Nick Page. And then Smoke Machine, huge Smoke Machines, Laser like lights. walking out during WWF. Yeah. That'll be great. You come out like Tony Robbins. You're just like boom, exactly. boom, boom, bring it up, everybody. Hit the stage. Everybody will recapture their love of landscape photography through the motivational speaker of Nick Page. He's coming down to you from Dayton, Washington. So thanks for joining us tonight, man. Thanks for finding time. We really appreciate you being on Photog Adventures. And you guys, you know Nick Page. Let's let's just save the introduction of who Nick Page is and let's go straight into the stories because Photog Adventures is really all about photography stories. So let's just go straight into that. And my first story comes from my question of you. You had an Aurora shot that was so crazy, making me jealous. I was out there in southern Utah with Brendan. We were out in Escalante. And in Escalante, we were looking over to the left, and we saw this stupid light pollution, this pink, pink lot pollution that was over there. And I didn't know what it was. We thought maybe it was someone in the distance. It was kind of dusty and hazy it in the area. It almost like a spotlight was shining in the sky, yeah, pink it around it. It was weird, and we, we thought, to think about that. that's really dumb. I hate how it's ruining that shot over there, but maybe I'll just stick to this area. Not realizing that I was ignoring Aurora happening, this crazy Aurora that was reaching southern Utah. And so when I'm checking Facebook to find out for sure if it was an Aurora, I see Nick Page's shot. And uh, for all of you who are following this podcast, you know Nick Page. You know his photography. You have been there with me and been envious and jealous of his shot. And he has this one. And we'll put it on the screen in the edit that you can see. Look at this arching, arching aurora going across the Milky Way arch as well in the panorama. And it's just all of it kind of terminates at the glow of the core. And you have a beautiful foreground. So I'm really curious about that shot. What it was that night. Were you already out? Were you going somewhere? What was going on there, Nick? So I was in in the middle of leading one of my Palouse tours. And so I had a group of photographers out with me. And we were, you know, we were kind of like, bummed out because we had just gotten kind of skunked as far as sunset because we had super clear skies and part of that part of that night's um agenda was going to be going out and doing night photography anyways and so i started getting aurora alerts on my phone and for those of you that don't have these apps installed you have to go get either aurora aurora notifi- notifier aurora, aurora notifier notifier i think that's what it is and then uh, i also do aurora pro or Aurora something pro. And then I, the, then there's also one that you can get where you can actually have them call you. And I do that one as well. And anyway, so I started, yeah. And I started getting all of these Aurora alerts and I was like looking up the sky. It's completely clear. It was a new moon. I'm like, 
Oh, man. We have, I don't want to get you guys' hopes up, but we have a really solid chance at Good Aurora. And then we start going to our, our location where I was planning on just doing straight up Milky Way shots. And then I get an Aurora alert. It was like a 7.7. And since I've been a photographer, it's never been that high. I was like, holy cow. Like, you guys don't realize just how lucky you are. And so we're we're out in the middle of nowhere in southeastern Washington State, which is where I live. It's kind of in the, on the edge of the Palouse there. And we go way out in the middle of nowhere. We have zero light pollution. And sure enough, I mean, the glow just – it started fairly subtle, and then it just – grew to where if you were doing a horizontal frame at 16 millimeters, it was going all the way up to the top of the frame, which is way strong for this part of the, you know, as far south as we are, I've never seen Aurora that strong. And so, yeah, we were out shooting it and I was like, the whole time I was like, you guys don't know how lucky you are. Like I, in the entire time I've been doing photography, I've never seen Aurora like this. And uh, so, and, and I knew that, you know, we had a nice moonless sky and I knew that, man, that money shot, the money shot is going to be getting the Milky Way transitioning do a Milky Way pano ending into the Aurora. And it, it worked out. It was a, it was a nightmare to post process, uh, but it worked out. Yeah. So speak to the area. You said you're going for your Palouse tour already to that cabin or barn or whatever that abandoned building is. Yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was an old abandoned house in the middle of this wheat field, way out in the middle of nowhere. It's like, you know, 10 miles from another house. And uh, it was, you know, it was a perfect spot for doing night photography because right, you got yeah, this right, creepy yeah. old house in the middle of a field, no light pollution. <laughs> and uh, so what I tried to do was I knew I was going to try to get that Milky Way arch, the Milky Way bow. Yeah, and yeah. I wanted to try to place that house as dead center in the frame as I could and have that, have an arch over the top of it. And I think I did okay. You know, I was so close to it. There's a lot of wide angle distortion and stuff. And you're dealing with a really big dynamic range, ironically, because when you're photographing Aurora, I don't know if you guys have covered this before, but when you're photographing Aurora, you can't really go too long with your shutter speed because the Aurora is moving and dancing. And if you do that, you just kind of get a green blob ac- across your frame rather than getting those very defined spikes. Oh, so yeah, it, yeah. in that frame, I was ha- I would think I was doing 10 second long exposures, which makes getting detail in your foreground really challenging <laughs> because, you know, because, you know, your yeah, shutter speed yeah. is shorter. So I was shooting, I think that shot is ISO 10,000 or ISO 8,000 for 10 seconds. And then, and then I just had to go crazy with trying to bring out the shadow detail. So did you focus on exposing for the Aurora and hope the Milky Way came through, or did you do two different exposures for them? Uh, because I was doing a panorama, I w- I'm not talented enough to do two different like <laughs> shutter speeds. That would just be a nightmare to process. So <clears throat> the way that I did it was I, I was exposing for the Aurora, trying not to blow it out, which you actually can do, which is crazy. The Aurora can get bright enough to you blow it, blow it out. Um, so I was exposing for the Aurora, which made the Milky Way part of it fairly dark. So in post-processing, um, not only did I have to bring out all that shadow detail, but I also had to bring out a little bit of um, highlight pop in that Milky Way and make it stand out again. Oh, man. No kidding. Wow. That must have been a ton of work. 
And on top of that, I'm standing there with 10 other photographers and we're all in each other's way. And oh, like, right, I'm like, right. just let me finish this panorama. This is... <laughs> and I had, and I only shot one panorama and luckily it worked out because I was wow. only able to get in there long enough. Cause you know, I'm supposed to be teaching. Right. Yeah. Right. You're supposed to be helping right, them. Right. But you can't pass right. that up though. I mean, no way. <laughs> Yeah, oh. there comes a point where even when you're teaching, you're like, oh, sorry, guys, I'm going to get my shot here. Because this, this happens once every, like, seven years. Because oh, um, yeah. you got to get a, a new moon to line up. you got to get a clear night and to get that aurora and to have it happen in the summer. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's the crazy right. part is you might get it in the wintertime, and then you're not going to get the Milky Way. And, yeah. And a vertical Milky Way at that. I mean, you had the friggin' arch of the Milky Way because mm. it was May when this happened, guys. It was the very end of May, and it was just fantastic timing for a nice, full, arching Milky Way. And it, to have it go into the friggin' oh, I'm just so filled with jealousy because, I, I mean, the shot that I got was like, hey, look, you can see some of the pink of the aurora. Oh, man, Nick has... There's this green layer, there's a dark, a really, really bright layer, and then there's pink, if I'm remembering correctly, because I don't have it up right now. Do you typically see auroras in those colors, or was this also different by color? Um, it, so if we're in my neck of the woods, by the time that we can actually see really honest aurora, it's going to have that that kind of magenta, those okay. magenta spikes. Uh, it's kind of like green, green with magenta highlights, you know, up <laughs> oh, on yes, the tips. Okay. And... Uh, by the time we can see it down in Washington State, typically we're getting some of that. But a lot of times, like when you're further north in Iceland, you get lots of the green, and then the red only happens during the really strong storms, which this was. This was a 7.7, which is just, you know, if you're in Iceland, you're melting your face off. <laughs> but but it, it makes for a good show down in Washington State. So the moving aurora up there with your own naked eyes, could you tell it's moving even though all you see is kind of a black and white light? Oh, yeah. I mean, so even with our naked eyes, a lot, so you say black and white light. A lot of times when we're standing there looking at Aurora, it does kind of just look like a, you know, like light pollution or just kind of this glow around the horizon. But this was strong enough. We were easily seeing it with our naked eye, wow. which doesn't always happen in Washington State. Wow. So yeah, it was, we could definitely make out the colors, and then you point a camera at it at a high ISO, and just like, oh man, you know, it's always better on the back of the camera than it is with your eyes. Um, but we could even see it with our naked eye. Man, okay, I'm thinking of Dayton and its longitude and where it is. Where's it latitude? Latitude that where it is on the Earth. Yeah, we're like um, 46th. 46th up? Between 45th and 46th, yeah. Okay. Somewhere so in there. You're much higher than we are, oh, yeah. but you're not as high. You're at the bottom of Washington while Seattle's at the very top of Washington, really, right? Yeah. Because you're looking in the Palouse area. So to have that much of a fantastic sky where you're filling a 60 millimeter at the top, mm. what a brilliant evening. When you were capturing it and helping everyone else out, what was the biggest struggle? Because if you're saying, okay, it's 10 seconds, do this. Are they having a struggle with the panorama or do they struggle more with trying to make sure they exposed well for the aurora? Well, for some of the people in the group, this is the first time they'd ever done night photography. Right. <laughs> and they get right. a KP 7.7. Like, that's about <laughs> saying, you guys don't understand. This out, doesn't man. just happen every night. And they're like, oh, I didn't know you guys always have Aurora here. We don't always have Aurora here. <laughs> we have it tonight on the one night that you decide to do night photography. So, you know, for a group like that, a lot of times, you know, we're kind of starting back at the beginning, you know, like, okay, getting focused. Getting focused is always the hardest part, 
in night photography to make sure that you're getting nice sharp sh yeah. stars. Um, and then there was only a few of the group that were advanced enough to like pull off a successful panor a panorama because, you know, when you're shooting a panorama, you got to get your tripod level. Hopefully you're shooting with an L bracket and you're, you know, kind of turning around the sensor rather than around the outside of your tripod. And so there was a few successful panoramas, but most people were struggling with getting any kind of shadow detail because it's a huge dynamic range. You either have to decide between uh, getting a Aurora that is not all blurred out from too long of a shutter speed, or you're going to have the really dark, really noisy um, shadow area. Right. If But if you're not doing a panorama, it's not so bad because like for what I did for my shots of just the house, Aurora, not, not trying to go all the way over to the Milky Way, is I would take one shot at 30 seconds at like ISO, I don't know, 4000. And that way I could get more shadow detail to lower ISO. And then I would crank up my shutter speed to that 10 seconds that I was shooting for bump up my ISO a little bit, and then I would blend those two shots together, use the shadows from one that are a little cleaner, and then my uh, sky from the other. Oh, nice. man, nuts. And then with the situation of making sure that they keep the, the – sh you're thinking of having that dynamic range and you're balancing for are you guys watching your histogram or are you just looking at the aftermath of if you look at the black spots, how noisy they were? In the LCD yeah, so alone. yeah, having the histogram up is always super important, especially when you're looking at those shadow details. Because um, trying to get that left side of the, the histogram off the edge is a <laughs> challenge, no matter what kind of you know. Um, so, kind of what I tell people is you you want you want the spike to happen before the edge of the histogram, and then be on its way down. And then if it still touches the end, you're still okay because you want some blacks in a in a night shot like that. Um, but also turning on the highlight alert. Um, I like in all landscape photography, having your highlight alert on is so tremendously helpful because rather than like checking your histogram, it just blinks at you yeah. if you're blowing yeah. stuff out. And you know, it's okay to blow out a couple stars, but to blow out a giant streak of Aurora, <laughs> that doesn't come back. And it's really easy to do. Like, I, I think we're going to talk about it a little bit in the show is. Uh, when I went to Iceland, I was blowing out Aurora like crazy because I'd never seen Aurora like that. And I was like, I didn't realize that it ever got that bright. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, but so having that highlight alert on, so it just automatically tells you when you've blown out highlights. Super helpful. Now, we know the Milky Way histogram. Now, I'm trying to picture what a histogram looks like with all the aurora throughout the sky. Is it just a clutter, a cluster of, of highs, or are we talking like peaks and valleys still? Uh, it's the peaks and valleys. It, it okay. pretty much looks, still looks like a U. You know, you get the little bit of stars over on the side, mm. and then that all that aurora stuff is not super bright. It's actually mm. okay. low okay. midtones. So basically, all it's doing is kind of stretching out that shadow end of your histogram a little bit. Oh. Doesn't look a whole lot different. Right on. Well, then the last question I'll ask about it is, how long did it last for you guys? Did you have only twenty minutes, or was this two hours of trying to capture it? Oh yeah. Actually, it lasted a solid hour. I would say. Um, wow. it probably started, I don't know, 1030 or 11 o'clock at night, maybe a little bit later than that, 1130. And we were out and we were in bed by 230, but we were shooting pretty much the same condition the whole time. We got bored of shooting it before we went back. Um, <laughs> wow. and that's not always the case. Like there's, there was been a couple of times where I've been out photographing it and it was peak for like 10 minutes and then gone. Or, you know, absolute peak for like one minute and then gone. 
Um, it just kind of comes in those waves and it, and it, it peaks and then it goes away. Um, but that night it was just strong. And that was, that was actually the same night where in Reykjavik, which is a large city in Iceland, we're talking, uh, what is it? Like 200,000 people are so strong, um, large city. They actually turned out all of the city lights so people in the city could watch the Aurora show because it was that strong and that the, oh, that perfect of conditions. So you could be in a huge city with all the city lights off and watch the Aurora. Oh and only in Iceland. Like if they would, that would never happen in Alaska oh. or, you know, Fairbanks, Alaska will turn off all the lights. So that's part of what makes Iceland so cool is because they, wow. they're laid back enough to do something like that. It's so cool. Yeah, it's freaking awesome. I'm trying to picture, I don't know Reykjavik at all. So is there a cool tower fountain building that is iconic there that people oh, probably yeah. lined up to get Aurora shots with because now they don't have the light pollution? Yeah. So there's the giant church they have. So the churches in Iceland, which are pretty iconic uh, because they're just like the classic steeple church, you know, the, the little like Stephen King, creepy little church, right? <laughs> yeah. With the, the yeah. pointy steeple. Well, in downtown Reykjavik, they have one of those only it's 350 feet tall. And it's like this really cool Gothic cathedral meets a little chapel style. It's like a little chapel that was like, that like, had it i don't know like came from godzilla it's this giant <laughs> gothic looking cool thing and it's the most photographed building in reykjavik and getting a epic aurora over that normally is impossible because you have all that light pollution but on that night it would have been possible so i'm sure there's photos flirting floating around of that that would have been amazing gosh yes absolutely gotta look up those and find them on google so we're talking to nick page and we want to talk to him next about the wave crash picture with the seagulls flying in there that and amazing the, shot and the sharpness was just so crisp i mean you just it really is amazing and uh we want to talk to him about how he got that what he did for that and uh so nick what tell us about that day and how that all came about chumming the water so the seagulls are all flying around there did you throw french fries everywhere and- <laughs> exactly it's all about the french fries the seagulls you know how they are about french fries that you know, that particular shot, what makes it so cool is all of those seagulls, honestly. Like the seagulls it giving it scale, and they're just swarming the waves that morning. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I during the winter months when the West Coast gets a lot of big surf um, advisories, when we get an offshore storm, um, I'm constantly checking my apps, my, my surf advisory apps. And any time that the waves are looking like they're going to be above 15 feet tall, that's when things start getting interesting. Mm. And that particular morning, we were supposed to get like 25 foot tall swells. And I was like, I have to go. Okay, well, I got it. And it's even partly cloudy. And that, and that's exactly what happened. We went to Cape Disappointment, which is the mouth of the Columbia, where the Columbia River meets the Pacific Ocean. Mm. And there happens to be this big iconic lighthouse. And it's a, it's a nice shot anytime. Um, but what's cool is that in the morning, you're kind of shooting back towards the light. You're shooting kind of easterly. And then you get all of these waves come in and crash against the, the big cliffs there. And when you're shooting waves, what you're really looking for is, you know, we've all seen those shots where you're like standing on a beach and the waves roll and then they come in and then they recede and nothing interesting happens. But what you're looking for is a cliff face for the waves to come in and to splash up 
And then that all that water starts going back out in the ocean, but then it meets this other wave that's coming in. And then you have these two waves and they go like this. And when they hit each other, that's when the magic happens. Oh. And, that, and that's what we were shooting all morning long. We we're shooting these backlit waves. And earlier in the morning, we were getting like a little bit of color in the sky. But then later in the morning, what was cool is that we were able to get really fast shutter speeds and still do that. Oh, yeah. So this particular shot that we're talking about, I'm pretty sure I shot that right around one four thousandth of a second. Really? really? And it was just like, and that's what gives it all of that all of those little droplets and all of that texture in the water and and i had all the light i needed and because of that we were able to get all that texture get and really freeze absolutely everything and that's what kind of gives it that you know moment in time feeling and the ironic thing is that i was there standing with two other photographers and all three of us got the shot. <laughs> and and I mean, w- within milliseconds of each other, the only difference is we were like 10 feet apart. And oh, luckily I posted my version of that photo first. <laughs> and Majid, every single time he posted that photo anywhere else on the internet, people said, you stole that from Nick Page. <laughs> and because what are the That's odds Nick that Page's we would get this same, the same moment, the same composition, but we did. And, you know, he's went on to, like, sell sell his version a bunch of times, and he's been in magazines because of it. I mean, and I think the seagulls, too, in both shots. So people are like, this is obviously Nick Page's shot. Look at the seagulls in the same place. Yeah, and yet- yeah but they're almost in the same place. So he's got a couple that overlap, oh, and that yeah. makes mine better. <laughs> ah. Makes it number More fifth separation. in the world at <laughs> oneisland.com, best United States photographers. <laughs> But that that morning, just because the conditions were so good, you know, we had that backlight, we had partly cloudy skies, which is a really hard thing to get when you get these big surf advisories, because the reason you get big surf advisories is because you have storms and typically you don't get partly cloudy skies with storms. Usually you get like, you know, 50 mile an hour winds and sideways rain and you're out there like trying to take (laughs) photos and you're not getting any contrast. But that morning we had contrast and just... It made for a really fruitful morning. I probably came away with five or six really good keepers from that morning. Oh, man, awesome. Uh, which is crazy. Being yeah. a guy who's living out here in the Utah desert, Brendan and I, if you're not familiar with us, we're in Utah, and we're in the desert doing photography all the time, not on the coastline. So I'm thinking about how I prepare myself for a coastline shot. I always think ND filter. I want to get a nice, smooth image. But for this, you want the action frozen. Right, And so right. you're sitting there. You're you're at 4,000, so you're hand-holding your camera, and I know you were using your 300L lens. You were... Are, are you all the way out at 300 when you were shooting something like that? Or do you just find the waves and just whatever you have to zoom in to do? I think that particular shot, I was right around like 220, somewhere in there. It was a little beyond 200. Um, and, the, and the crazy thing is like I got this shot while I was recording one of my vlogs, yeah. which doesn't always happen. Usually I go out and do a vlog and that's pretty much jinxing the entire <laughs> thing because <laughs> as soon as I start filming it, I'm not getting any good you know photos. Gonna the the I'm going to get no sunset. Like I pretty much jinxed the whole thing. But that morning <laughs> I, I came away with really good photos and it made me look like a genius. <laughs> nice. uh, but you even uh, had your son there next to you, didn't you? Yep, and he got good photos. Like nice. I got, so I've got. Uh, at that time, he was seven years old. He's got a little Canon twenty D with a Nifty Fifty on it. Awesome. And Sweet. throw throw it in auto, and he just goes around and has fun with it. He got some great shots for that morning, just like fifty millimeters. Mm-hmm. Got wi- like spray coming off the waves, and because it's teed up for you so much at that location, because you get this 
iconic lighthouse and these waves rolling in and light was good it's hard to screw that up yeah, even with right. a canon 20d and a young <laughs> nuo 50 millimeter you can still get good photos um you mentioned i several, forgot what i was saying you mentioned that. several times about it being partly cloudy and i'm thinking i guess entirely overcast helps you have an even light in ways but you almost want partly cloudy because then you get some harsher light right, hitting the, the wave tops yeah. you get the contrast is that what you're looking mm -hmm. for Sometimes, like uh, the reason I was liking the, the amount of light that we're getting is for one, I could increase my shutter speed because, mm, right. you know, if if I don't have that direct light, I just don't have enough light to get that fast shutter speed without shooting at like ISO 1000 and stuff's you know you, you can't really push the contrast quite as far if you're shooting at those kind of isos um that and that that kind of harsh light especially because it was backlit it just gives it kind of this mystical glow uh. and everywhere that i go i'm always looking for backlight for some reason i'm just addicted to backlight especially <laughs> like forest scenes and ocean scenes i just love the way water spray looks when it's backlit or leaves look when they're backlit um, so that's why I was really excited about the partly cloudy conditions there. That and we got some color, which is kind of nice too. Oh, yeah. So the yeah. the beginning of the that morning, I started off like very much on a tripod, got my composition, stood there with my little you know <laughs> clicker and just shot waves and shot waves and shot the same composition over and over and over. But as the light came up and as as I kind of got those earlier shots, I went handheld and I was just kind of just following the waves as they came in and just kind of zooming in and trying to fill the, fill the frame with the most interesting part, which were the really interesting shapes that the waves are making. And those ended up being my favorite shots. And I bet you're constantly going back and forth and scanning all the different waves that are crashing. Or was there one spot at Cape Disappointment where you're facing everything is crashing all together? And I mean, I guess you had three guys there. And so they were all looking at the exact same wave. So it must be that it's consistently crashing big on those right moments there, huh? Yeah, and I was still tracing each one. But one of the things that you learn from doing sports photography is they shoot with both eyes open. So, for example, I would be shooting and I would be following this wave. And then I would see out of my, the corner of my eye that another wave was coming at. And I would be ready for it wow. rather than like, it surprising me and being, oh, you know, and, and then taking photos just a little bit too late, I would be able to see when it's about to happen. Or I would just kind of peek over, you know, if it was coming to the left side. Of the so frame. one eye in the viewfinder and one eye wide open looking and scanning yep. the terrain. Absolutely. Right on. And that's one of those things that I learned from um, some of the like photojournalists and sports photographers that I know is they shoot with both eyes open. It looks really weird when you're standing next to them and they're like eyes like wide open. <laughs> but, but it helps you see your surroundings and see outside of that viewfinder, which is really important when you're shooting, you know, through a long lens. Uh, you're seeing such a small window of something that you need to be able to be aware of the surroundings. That way you can anticipate something coming into your frame. Especially like an NFL football player diving into your lap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Although that time, uh, that's totally other st another story. But like, it was just like, I was so excited that the action was coming to me. Like I, I would have gladly took a helmet to the face. Oh, right. Because I was just like, shot. so excited. <laughs> he got an awesome shot in an NFL game as they were just, the, ca the catch was made and he was going through the end zone right at Nick. He was oh, coming right, right, right at right. him. It was a corner. It was a corner shot. Last play of the game, coming right at me, and I, and so, talk about a tangent. So when you're shooting NFL, typically you have two cameras. You got your big telephoto 
on a monopod, which was my 120 to 300 night. And I'm shooting the action. I'm shooting the quarterback, throwing the ball from like the 20 yard line. And then I see he throws it right to me. And, and then about then I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and then it's slow motion. It's like, throw the camera aside and then bring this other camera up, which had a 16 to 35 on. And all I, and I always keep that one in like wide focus point areas, like not a narrow one, mm. just like full, all the focus points. That way I can do exactly what I did for that shot, which was like, click, 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 click. You, you didn't know, even and, look, you just went. I, could, I didn't have time because like I've, I have a photo of him throwing the ball and then I have a photo of the guy catching the <laughs> ball right there. And everything in between was just me doing this. And I, I shot that from right here. Luckily, I shot wide enough to where I could like fix the horizon line. Did the guy made contact great. with you too. Did he run into you? Yeah, he kind of rolled up against me. Oh, okay, but right on. It, right n- on. Not as special as when Calvin Johnson stepped on me. That was like the highlight of my life. <laughs> <clears throat> after, like, he stepped on me with his cleat right after scoring a touchdown, and I'm taking photos. And then afterwards, I was like, Calvin Johnson just stepped on me. That was amazing. <laughs> it was pretty this cool. Broken toe was Calvin Johnson's. <laughs> exactly. Can, will you sign my broken toe? <laughs> <laughs> find my punctured skin. You send him a cast that's this big. This is my cast, my broken toe. Can you sign it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not bigger. Can you, can you use a fine fine tooth? Uh... So as people are trying to find a location, you mentioned the really cool water location of having it. You hit a cliff face. It crashes, but then that reverse reaction of crashing into it sends water back out, and then it intersects with an oncoming wave, and that out there wave makes the action. What the heck were the seagulls doing in the water? What were they hoping is happening? Because they were just having a blast on the wave. There must have been some kind of small fish school that was swimming, uh, you know, that would just happen to be there then. Because normally the seagulls, like when the waves are going crazy like that, they're like, eh, I'm just going to sit this one out, <laughs> you know, because they're not really too big into just getting pummeled by waves. But there must have been some fish that got stirred up because of the, the wave action. And because the sun was out, that makes the birds more active. When mm. they, it's overcast, they kind of can't see as good into the water. So that must have had something to do with it. It was just complete luck. Oh, my gosh. Um, but it totally like, adds to the shot. Fish out, like, here <laughs> yeah. you go. Exactly. Confluence of so yeah. many perfect conditions yeah. came into that shot. I mean, obviously, it's why you won an award for it or won at least the contest for it. And, I mean, it's just two images in a row where Nick Page talks about having been out there. I mean, Photog Adventures is all about reminding you guys, get out there and do it. He, you knew some of the conditions that were lining up, and you knew why you would go out there. Mm-hmm. And you were already out in the Palouse area for the Aurora shot, and then the the conditions just kind of came to you but it's like man just be out there be ready because landscape photography it seems like oh, i don't know percentage let's say 70 percent of it is practically just getting outside oh yeah yeah because i mean if you look at the average um amateur photographer they they get a lot of like ho-hum conditions you know they're they're out shooting the same spots as like all the pro guys a lot of times but they're shooting it in kind of like yeah that's okay yeah. conditions and the the people that like you know win awards and like do do get really famous for their photography or whatever they're out shooting in like the most amazing conditions and it seems like every photo that mark adamus posts <laughs> or every photo that you know mark metternich or a ted gore or enrico fasati or any of those guys post it's always in like extraordinary weather conditions and the reason for that is because they've be- become a student of the weather 
and they go out and they make sure that they're available to go out when the weather is doing something cool. And that's really the biggest difference. Like that's the biggest advantage of being that guy without the day job. And the guy that has the day job is like the guy without the day job. When the weather happens, they're like, I'm out. no question. I'm going out. Like I'm grabbing my camera and I'm out. Sorry, honey. <laughs> and, and then the, the person with the day job, they're like, well, I got to get up in the morning. I guess yeah. I can't go. Yeah. And so, I mean, and it sucks. And that, that was me for a very long time. And it's, a hard situation to get out of but at the same time it can make all the difference in your photos if you if you just make the time like when the weather is right to just go out and do it like put game of thrones aside it can wait it's on netflix <laughs> next july and and just go out and shoot the weather because the weather is really what can make it just take a photo over the top it can take that composition over the top when you get that interesting light. The best thing happened to me all year about three, four weeks ago when I finally got fired from my job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have more time for photography. It was awesome. And, you know, my wife was not ready for me to take the Band-Aid off of a consistent paycheck. <laughs> I call it a Band-Aid, but mm. I hated it because I wanted to go out and do this more. And then when that happened to us, it was forcing the situation. And I am loving it. Uh, I can't wait. So uh, recommend all of you guys make sure you do a YouTube channel so much that you're not showing up to work when you said you would because your engine broke down or you have a flat tire and you're two days longer than you said you would be because then you lose your job and you have plenty of time for photography. So get out there, guys. Lose your jobs. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take a break right now and we'll come back and ask Nick about his questions. We're going to talk about him with Iceland. He had Iceland twice this year or three times, Nick. Was it only two? Yeah, twice this year. Mm -hmm. Twice and both of them very recently. So I just flipped off all of Britain. Sorry. <laughs> and <laughs> two this year. So we'll come back and talk about that. Welcome back, guys, to the Photog Adventures podcast. We're talking with heroic, amazing, fantastic, inspiring photographer Nick Page. <laughs> heroic. Yes. Look at this. Honestly, you are, man. I mean, what you've gone through the last few months, we're not even touching on that because everyone knows it. But it's just you have pushed through a lot of nonsense and a lot of crazy distractions in your life. And you've been fantastic and fun to hang out and follow on everything you're doing so yeah you are heroic and the fact <laughs> so many of you out there like me have learned from nick page and so you are one of our heroes man it's awesome to have you on the call right now and if i don't cry i think we could go on <laughs> yeah let's let's have a moment i feel like we just bonded right here now you know like one of the things that i truly believe in is that in life it, it's not about what happens to you it's about how you react to the things that do happen to you that's what you're defined yeah. by right. you're defined by how you react when you know something goes bad and so i've tried really hard to like think about that and be like you know do i want to be the guy that completely falls apart and like you know throws it all away over <laughs> something bad or do i want to be the person that overcomes and you know some, someday they make a movie about me i want to be that guy <laughs> so that that's kind of you know one of the things I try to live by is like, it's about how you react to the things that happen to you. Photography life, the Nick Page story. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that bit. Yeah, Saturday Night Live has some good things still, but not as much Sometimes as Sometimes when to. I put my lens in, I don't hear the click. And then I wonder, is the camera sabotaging me? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds exactly like a deep thought. All right, we're talking about one of his last places that we wanted to mention on this podcast is Iceland. He's been there twice. He has been there before. And now that you've gone to Iceland in your life, I think four or three times. Is it four? Uh, I think I'm up to five times five in my times. life. Five times and, live. And then, 
Right. And within the last 10 months, I've been there three times. And then twice in 2017. What year are we in? 2017, <laughs> yeah. twice. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Well, there are a lot. Coming back from, uh, from an awesome place that's becoming more and more popular, just crazy mm. popular Iceland now, what have, you, what have you taken out of it as being most awe-inspiring and awesome or any great stories from Iceland that you want to share with us right now? So I know we talked about shooting Aurora in Washington State, but shooting Aurora in Washington State is nothing <laughs> like shooting Aurora when you're far north like in Iceland. Um, so I, I've had the chance to shoot good, solid Aurora three and a half times. Like I got a little bit of glow o- above Kirkufellfoss once. Yeah, I remember um, that picture. And, you know, that's okay, but that was just kind of like a faint glow. That's like a KP one and a half. Like, that's a KP nothing. Um, But, and then the the second time during that first trip, or it wasn't the first trip, but that trip that we got Aurora, um, we shot like a KP three, and... It was it was really active there for a while, and it was just like amazing and jaw dropping and so exciting. And I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. And then I went to Iceland this last time, and I get off the plane. And when you fly to Iceland, you you fly all night. You get there and you get off the plane at like six thirty in the morning, and then you have the whole day ahead of you, and you haven't slept in like twenty four hours. <laughs> and so you, you generally you fall, go to back you go to bed early, and that day is kind of a wash. Well, that day I go to bed, and then I start getting aurora alerts, and I'm like, oh no, I can't even get out of bed. And so I I drug myself out of bed, and traveled kind of up towards Kirkufellfoss thinking, well, maybe I can get that. But the thing about Iceland and the thing that makes it so photogenic is that the weather is so volatile. Hmm. Like you you always just have interesting skies and big dramatic clouds. And and because of that, clear skies are very, very difficult to get in Iceland. And you can't photograph Aurora through clouds. So um, one of the things that you always, always have to do is you have to look at the cloud cover map the satellite imagery and see, okay, where are the gaps going to be? And that's your only chance to get any Aurora. So, um, I doing lots of that. I was like looking, I'd be looking on my phone, find out where the hole in the, in the clouds are drive to that hole and then discover, Oh, the holes moved. Okay. We're going to drive like <laughs> 40 miles that way. Oh crap. There's no road there. And then, you know, it's a lot of that. But that first night I finally found the gap and I was kind of out and, I've I've seen lots of aurora before this, but this was the first time when I would be driving, I'd have my headlights on, all of the dash lights kind of blinding me, phone on, and then I'd just see this green streak across through the through mm. the windshield because it was so bright that it was like almost startling as you drive. You're like seeing it's, the green too. You're seeing the color. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Ooh. I mean, it just looks like somebody painted a green streak across and that's with your headlights on and everything. And then you pull over and you finally get out of your car and you stop and you look up and you're, it's just like jaw dropping. Like you've never seen anything like it. Mm. 360 degrees all around. You have no idea which way is even better to point your camera at. And it's all just dancing and moving (laughs) and building and then fading. And it's just, the most amazing, like I'm getting goosebumps talking about it because it's the most amazing like weather phenomenon or light condition you've ever seen in your life. Wow. And so I found the gap and luckily it was in, well, not luckily, it was in just randomville, Iceland, where it was just like some guy's field. There's no like 
you know interesting features whatsoever there's no landscape to photo photograph and i hate those shots that are just like you know black black horizon line and then sky with aurora in it and i didn't want to do any of that so every single photo that i did i like found like a little kind of hill and then i would stand on the hill and i, I would be the feature <laughs> that way i could have my epic aurora selfie for mm. for uh facebook or whatever bucket list check. Um, yeah but you know that's that's Probably the most, I mean, of my photographic life, shooting Aurora is the most just like gives you chills. It's just the most amazing, beautiful thing because it's just every single shot's different because it's moving mm. and it's challenging to photograph, but it's just so beautiful that it's almost hard to take a photograph during it because you just want to gawk at it. <laughs> and you'll, you'll set up composition this way in iceland and you'll look back behind you and realize it's like four times stronger behind you and then oh. you turn around and shoot that way and then it's stronger be and it just keeps moving and it's just it's just crazy i, I can't um, imagine what that would be like i have no I idea wait. can't wait yeah when you're sitting there in that situation have you ever tried a time lapse have you ever done a time lapse for an aurora <clears throat> i i have i actually did it from <laughs> this sounds terrible this sounds so lazy but i did it from the deck on my from on my hotel <laughs> like i went out and like we had aurora but there was like lots of cloud cover and there was just kind of this gap so i pointed a camera at it started to time lapse went back to bed <laughs> and i was like eh. This is, I'm too tired and then you can tell that was later in the trip when i was like ah whatever <laughs> no kidding but so I got a little time lapse of that, but the problem is when the t when the sky is really going off, you're just obsessed with trying to get as many different compositions as possible, mm. and you're never sure which one's the best. And mm. it's such a time commitment to just like dedicate a camera to one composition all night when the conditions are that unique. I would rather come home with because I do more photo than video. Right. I would rather come home with five good compositions mm. than one time lapse yeah, of one composition. Sense. Is it mostly above you directly or a lot of horizon aurora? Uh, I mean, you, you said it was pretty much all around you and it's moving. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's all the way. It's it's a dome over you. It's oh. like a complete dome. So, like, I was doing lots of vertical shots with a 14-millimeter lens and it was still exiting the top of the frame because I was I was still shooting, like, more than beyond straight up. Yeah. And it was it just goes all the way over you. Wow. Like, it, if you had a 360-degree camera, it would just, like, be a spider web above you dancing. Oh, it's crazy. That is bizarre. That's awesome. So what kind of gear are you thinking? Just a very open aperture, as much as you can go, fast as you can go, and then a wide and just hope to capture something with the 10-second exposure? Well, f during that, I was actually doing shorter exposures than that because it was moving really fast. Mm. So I was doing lots of, like, four-second exposures, five-second exposures. Wow. Um, shooting with 5D Mark IV, I'm a Canon shooter, mm -hmm. and uh, and then I was using that 14-millimeter f1.8 from Sigma. Sweet lens. Oh, it's really a perfect lens. lens to have with that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, was pretty, I was pretty happy. I was uh, content to have that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it it did it performed really well. It's got a little comb distortions up in the, in the uh, corners, but you know any fast prime is going to have that. But I was completely content because you know I was able to completely blow out my my aurora with like ISO eight thousand at five seconds, which wow. normally that's like not even enough for you know a solid. Well, it kind of depends on how you're doing it, but when I'm a lot of times. When I'm doing night photography, I expose until I get shadow detail, and then I darken that sky back down. 
because you can always darken a sky mm. but you start getting into weirdness when you start brightening stuff in those high isos so i try to get the whole shot bright enough to where i get shadow detail and going into it with that kind of preconceived like you know practice mm. this aurora was so much brighter than anything i've ever photographed i was just blowing out my sky like crazy is is just wow. insane <laughs> everything um, you've and, done before was just thrown out the window huh yeah, absolutely. I was learning all over again because I'd never shot anything quite like that. And I got two nights of that where the second night we probably only had like 10 minutes of shooting time. The first night I probably, you know, I was struggling to find a good spot to shoot. I was just like, like I said, randomville where I was like, road? No, that sucks. And that fence? No, that sucks. And I, I'll shoot my rental car. You know, like I was just struggling to find anything. And then I finally found something and it kind of got really strong for 15 minutes and then the clouds rolled in and it obscured it all. And that's kind of how it goes. And I said, wow. you, you shoot while you got clear sky. You mentioned it right before we came into this break. We were talking off camera about how this podcast has been a theme of getting out there and knowing your conditions and following your conditions. Can you repeat what you were saying to us earlier? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in Iceland, especially because like the, you know, the weather is so volatile. Um, you really have to just be a student of the weather and of the conditions. So not only did I have my Aurora apps that were telling me, you know, Hey, there's going to be KP4 tonight which, or I think that's all it was, was KP4. Here, it wouldn't even be photogenic. There, it's like, oh, my God, you know? <laughs> um, and that's the difference that being right under that aurora makes. Right, right. And not only that, but it tells you which direction you're going to look because sometimes the crazy thing is you have to look south to see the northern lights when you're in Iceland because <laughs> that band will actually be a little south of you or it'll be right above you or it'll be a little north. And just looking at that map will tell you which way you need to look in the first place. Awesome. And then you have to look at the the satellite imagery to know where, uh, where the gaps in the clouds are going to be. And all of this comes down to just like being, you know, astute and being – uh, you know, paying attention to the information that is out there to to help you. And the average person, you know, that's just a tourist isn't going to do those things. You know, a lot of times you, you can you can pay to be on one of these Northern Lights tours and they just take you to the same icon. And if it happens there, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But the people that get the shots are the ones that are like constantly like on their phone and checking their app and like, OK, well, if I go a little bit this way, it looks like it's going to line up. And those are the people that get the shot, the ones that are like really paying attention and trying hard. Well, that is fantastic. It's the adventure and you have to be willing to follow and flow with the adventure, be willing to do what it takes and don't get lazy, don't get tired. I mean, Nick had just arrived in Iceland and he had a whole week ahead of him. He should have rested before he had that workshop, but he didn't. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was illegal for me even to be out there because I was so sleep deprived. <laughs> I was probably operating on three hours sleep and I was like, falling asleep as I drove. But once I got out and I was shooting it, you know, and it, the cool thing is, uh, it was probably the nicest weather I had in Iceland as well. Oh, uh, it was, yeah. it was autumn in Iceland. And a lot of times we we're shooting in like 35 degree weather with like, 
you know, 40 mile an hour winds, mm-hmm. which is chilly. Um, but that day, I, there was like not a breath of wind. I was out in a t-shirt oh, and wow. it was like the most amazing, in a t-shirt photographing Aurora 360 <laughs> degrees around me. It was like, oh, it doesn't get any better than this. Wow. And that woke me up and I had no problem driving back to the hotel. I had a little problem getting to sleep, <laughs> but uh, had I not put in the effort to do it, I wouldn't have any shots from it. So. Yeah. Sure. Ah, it's awesome. That's inspiring. Well, we always end every podcast with a gear time and tip of the week. So let's go ahead and start gear time with Brendan. Yeah. So we want to talk to you about some problems you've had with a certain tripod head <laughs> and um, your solution to that. You know, so we want to talk to you about that. What What is your What is your story on that? Uh, so I've been a huge fan of the Acrotech GP ball head. In Me fact, too. I've got it. I have got it hanging around I somewhere here. And uh, <laughs> it's like right there. Oh, yeah, uh, anyways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's right over there. You see There's that? There's a silhouette the of it. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. recognize yeah. it. <laughs> Do you want to pull up mine? I think it's in my bl- – no, wait. I don't know. Do you see my tripod? No, so, so right here right. is the – Acrotech GP ball head. And what I've always loved was this locking mechanism for the lever clamp. Yeah. It's got that nice reassuring lock. But the problem is that sometimes it doesn't properly lock. Let's see if how talented I am here. Oh, <laughs> the largest lens ever to do that. And so sometimes <laughs> it doesn't lock. So right now I have it, and it's not that it's too tight here. Um, with the with the adjustment knob, but it feels like it's clicked in, but it's not. Oh. And so what happened was, there I was, I was shooting in a waterfall, and uh, I went to click it in and got my shot, and I threw my camera over my shoulder, walking on, walking with my tripod over my shoulder, and this came undone. 5D Mark IV goes swimming <laughs> with a 16 to 35 version 3. Oh, the version oh, 3 too. <laughs> yep. And uh, scratched the front element of the 16 to 35. Completely killed the 5D Mark IV. I have insurance, but it, I had a thousand dollar deductible uh, on my insurance. Like screw job insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was still a very expensive learning mistake. And what happened is that in this Acrotech ball head, uh, the the lever clamp it gets a little bit scarred up up in here. Oh, it gets man. just a little bit scuffed, so it doesn't it doesn't operate quite as smoothly. And then it doesn't click in. And after mentioning this on my podcast, the Landscape Photography Podcast, if anybody's mm-hmm. interested. Which if you guys aren't listening to it, I'd be very shocked because you know Nick Page. <laughs> but if you aren't, you got to subscribe to it right now. Pause the video and go and freaking subscribe. <laughs> yeah, just stop what you're doing right now. Stop. But anyways, after mentioning that on my show, I had about 15 other people reach out to me saying that they had the exact same thing happen with Ooh. theirs. And in fact, some people said that they've even had issues with the, like the knob style. Really the knob. Locking clamp. Yeah. yeah. They saying that it actually backs out in oh, some way. No, I was feeling so good about mine with my knob style. Right. So anyways, that was a big problem. And, and one of those kind of experiences is enough to be like, well, the hell with that <laughs> thing. I'm Ooh. done. Yeah. And so, um, after that I switched to really right stuff. Um, I have BH-55. It's a big, heavy beast. Dang. I don't love the weight, um, but I think a BH-40 is like a, like it's going to be in my future. That way I can have kind of the, the heavy working out of the car, set, car setup, and then the little bit lighter, I have to walk a mile or two to get to my location setup. Um, 
because that lever lock mechanism, there's just nothing to go wrong. There's no adjustment that can be wrong. There's no like anything that can get scuffed. There's not a clicking mechanism, which is the very thing that scared me about that. I was afraid that I might accidentally bump it and loosen it, but that's not really a realistic fear because if you if you do unlatch it, it only unlatches halfway and it still can't fall out. And it's in a position where you can't really accidentally do it. It's underneath the camera. Mm, so yeah. I've switched to really right stuff. The GP ball head, I, I, it's got a lot of really smart features. I love how light it is. But I've never loved that it took so much tension to really clamp it down. If you have a heavy setup, it takes more force than you would expect it to take mm. to really fully lock it down. And then when you use a really right stuff one, you barely turn it at all, and it's just rock solid. It's got it's just way more stable. It's way more um, easy to lock down. Mm. So okay. yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's, awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm and, nervous. And it's, <laughs> I've got well, and that, the architect. It, right, and see, and that's the thing is that's the worst part of being somebody that recommends gear is that yeah. eventually, like, you, like, everything's awesome when you first get it. You know, when you first buy a tripod, like a Faisal 3472, when you Speaking first buy of. a Faisal 3472, it works great. It's smooth. You talk about how much you love it. And then because you have people to subscribe to you on YouTube, like I do, people go out and buy it along with you. And then you start having problems with it six months later. And then you suddenly feel really guilty because, you know, maybe 50 to 100 people went out and bought that tripod because you told them to, Nick Page. And now they all have the same problems that you've got. And it's my fault because I recommended it before I should have. So if I was smart, I would I would own something for like six months before I did a review on it. Yeah. That way I can be like, this thing has lasted six months. It must be good yeah. rather than. Yeah. The Faisal tripod that hasn't lasted so well, um, Faisal has sent me an, a replacement for that. Um, and then the Acrotech, oh man, I loved that thing. I ranted about it. People went out and bought it. And now I'm like, sorry, guys, it, it, it dropped my camera in the thing. And all these people are holding it like, but but I bought this because you told me to. <laughs> and it's Nick Page's fault. So uh, I love the Acrotech still. And I don't know. I mean, I guess I recommend just don't carry it on your shoulder like Tom Sawyer, but it's so... I feel so cool doing that as a photographer. Yeah, that, I, I mean, do everybody does yeah. it. Everybody does it. Like, there's that, uh, like, when you're first starting with landscape photography, you you protect your camera, and your camera is like your baby, and you take a picture, and then you wipe it off, and then you put it carefully back in your camera bag. You wear it, and then you walk five feet, and then you take it back out of the camera, you know, and you're protecting it like a little baby. And then later on, like, you get a camera and you're just like, oh, whatever. And you just like pack it around like it's nothing because you use it so much that you you forget how much you paid for it, I guess. <laughs> right? That or it's like lost all its resale value and it's worthless anyways. Um, 5D Mark III. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's just one of those things. Well, uh, oh. I definitely feel that way about my Canon 6D right now. I'm ready to get a 5D Mark IV. I can't wait mm -hmm. for that to happen soon. But before we end this podcast, tip of the week, we want to hear those apps. You mentioned them for the Auroras. You mentioned yeah. them for Waves. We're going to be in Oregon here next month, and we want to be able to know what the Waves are doing. So what would you recommend? What are the names of those apps? Aurora apps, Wave apps, what do you got? Okay, so I have three wave apps that I really like. And uh, why first three? One, Do you have to just verify each of the numbers between them and just kind of measure out a median or what? Right. So 
each one is measured by buoys, and not every buoy is going to be close to the exact location you're looking for. Also, some apps are a little bit more optimistic about wave size, and mm-hmm. some are a little bit more like, you know, Eeyore about it. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like for example, Magic Seaweed is one of them that I use. It doesn't have every single location that I like to go to shoot, so um, it's not totally complete in that way. And it tends to be a little bit Eeyore about the wave height. Like it'll say 15 feet and it'll actually be more like 20. Um, So to compensate for that, I have Surfline, which is a little bit more like um, easily excited and optimistic about wave size. It'll say waves are going to be 500 feet tall (laughs) and they're not 500 feet tall. So Magic Seaweed. Surfline, and then the other one that I have is Windy, and Windy is a really cool app because it's kind of like this combination between um, surf height and weather app. So you can actually dial in exactly where you're wanting. You just move your cursor on a map to the location, and then you can switch between wind speed, weather radar, clouds, temperature, surf height, rain, and thunderstorms okay so there's and two you, windies is it the red one or the blue one the red one the red one okay the red one and and i i've learned to love this app it's just so nice because it's got so many different uh layers of information all in one app um i wish it had tide heights but it doesn't mm. um and that's another reason that i need to keep one of those other ones around is because tide heights really important um so you know when the tide times are happening and stuff awesome so for uh, these, these surf apps you're basically telling us you don't need to have one of these three i recommend try them you should probably work with all three to know for certain mm-hmm. yeah because they're all going to tell you something slightly different and you know it doesn't hurt they're and they're free so you might as well just like yeah. kind of hedge your yeah. bets compare yeah. the information against each other and uh and you know and sometimes you just don't have that exact location in that particular app, but you might in the other one. Awesome. And awesome. Cool. So yeah, cool. I keep several. For Aurora, the, really, I've kind of boiled it down to just one. I'm using Aurora Pro, Aurora and it's Pro. just like Aurora Notifica- Notifier Pro. And uh, what I like about it is it'll give me the forecast. Um, yeah, it gives me the forecast. <laughs> <I guess laughs> you mentioned that you even like get called it. too. Is that from Aurora Notifier? Yeah, and that, that's a different different thing. It's uh, it's like auroranotification.com or something like that. I don't uh-huh. remember the exact thing. We'll try to find it before we get off our call here. Um, but it's something that a friend of mine actually got set up, and they it'll actually physically call you, and, uh, and it'll be like an Ohio number and saying, uh, KP Index is scheduled to be 6.5 tonight, and blah, blah, <laughs> blah. And it just gives you that w- extra layer of notification, and it's kind of nice. Yeah. Because because yeah. we tend to notice phone calls a lot more than we notice notifications on our phone. True. And for that reason, it's kind of nice. Do they have the same number every time so you know it's them, or is it always an unknown caller? Yeah, so you can you can save them, and then you can you normally, when I get them, is in the morning. I look at my phone, and I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> I missed it. <laughs> Too late. Because, Too late. Yeah. Well, awesome. <laughs> this is fantastic. It was a great time hanging out with you, Nick. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight on the Photog Adventures podcast. For a reminder, for those of you listening, we have our listener adventure out in Oregon. We're going to go all along the coastline as a bunch of newbies to the area. Brendan and I have been out to Bandon, but that's the only place that we've been so far. So yeah. we're going to meet down in Brook 
bookings and work our way up until we get back to Portland and fly out. So if you guys are in the area or if you're going to be in the area because you love the idea of going out here and joining us, it's a completely free adventure. Just join us and be with a bunch of noobs and enjoy having fun. We're going to be there from the 14th through the 18th of November, hanging out in that area and just kind of watching the weather, going to the places that work out and just having a blast. So listener adventure. If you want more information on that, go to photogadventures.com forward slash listener adventure. The page is going live soon. So as soon as this podcast is over, I'll be able to put that up there as well as the stuff that Nick has recommended. We're going to put that in our show notes. You can always find that on photogadventures.com forward slash EP. 53. This is episode 53, so you can find all of our notes there, whether just by searching on the homepage or going forward slash EP53. So thanks again, Nick. Where can people find you, your podcast, your life, and follow you and love you and be a part of the fan club that is the <laughs> Nick Page fan club? Awesome. So you can find the podcast on any podcatcher. It's just landscape photography podcast no idea where i came up with the name. I don't know how you did it <laughs> i don't know how you got it that's what i I'm was wondering. so excited wow. that that was available i was like oh, how is this not a thing already it's, oh book especially as a dot com i mean we were sitting here <laughs> yeah, photog yeah, adventures yeah. podcast if you search landscape photography we're competing with jordan yance over there at picture monk and mm-hmm. lens and landscape and it's like yeah we're number two and then nick comes around we're bumped to number three but we're still found <laughs> we're still found right next to nick page <laughs> uh, so, so yeah anyways you can find me there that's my podcast you can find me on youtube just do a search for nick page photography instagram nick page photography facebook nick page photography and that's p-a-g-e and do no, you recommend people joining eyes. your group over there for the landscape photography podcast or are you trying to keep it small oh uh, yeah where we have a facebook group you can find us there and uh, yeah, that's just kind of where we all converse and do all that stuff. The fun thing about being there is that you can help ask questions like Art Wolf. You ask questions as well. I and mean, it's just great mm. to hear who's coming up and be a part of it behind the scenes of the Nick Page Landscape Photography Podcast. So seriously, go ahead. We, and, we, and I've been lucky to round up some pretty awesome guests. You know, we've mm. recently had that, that uh, panel with Thomas oh, Heaton yeah. and Aaron Bobnick and Brian Peterson. <laughs> just had Art Wolf on the show, had Mark Metternich and... And Michael Shane Bloom Ryan on Dyer. lately, like wow. yeah, Ryan Dyer. We we've had some pretty big names on, and we've got more coming up. So you gonna get you Enrico Fossati back? Fossati you gonna back. do one with him? I think so. I'm letting him work on his English for a year. Let's, <laughs> let's let him work on his English. But man, I love Enrico. He's such a nice guy too. <clears throat> and that's that's the coolest thing is I I go out and I find the guys that I'm really inspired by. And then I have them on the show and I try to steal their secrets. And that's pretty much, that's pretty much the entire premise for my podcast is just stealing Very the secrets. It's from a vehicle the of stealing and reverse engineering how they do it. Exactly. exactly. So since we're on the podcast and just talking to a bunch of noobs, how exactly did you do that image? Because I'm not going to, I'm not going to try that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I would know. Let me get my pen. <laughs> well, seriously, Nick, thank you so much. Thank you guys for watching an hour long YouTube video and joining us and you can join us every week we'll be having a podcast up there on uh, you we don't usually do it on YouTube we just usually do it on the podcast mm-hmm. catchers that you can download or iTunes and you'll find us every Monday thanks for joining us thanks again Nick we are humbled by your presence everybody this is the famous the one and only Nick Page so thanks you guys see you thanks, later Nick. see you